When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the land of bourbon and bad decisions. This is the Relentless Daring Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Morgan, and here we are engaged in the relentless, daring pursuit of truth, justice, and American jackassery. So, it has been a really busy week with uh, all the stuff going on with Iran, and are we going to are we going to bomb them, or are we not going to bomb them? I don't know. Um, talk of past gay presidents, a couple... Uh, Supreme Court rulings that I'm going to go over, and a runaway jury. But, um, yeah, so like I said, it's been a busy week and uh, lots of stuff to talk about, so we're going to get to it now. So the biggest thing to really come out from this week, uh, as far as world politics goes, that has been the uh, all the stuff going on with Iran. Uh, as you know, last week there was uh, the two cargo containers, uh, oil tank ships that were uh, mined. Whether it was uh, torpedoes, whether it was they're thinking limpet mines that you know they stuck on the side of the boats and blew up. Um, the people on the Japanese boat, they're saying that it was, uh, something came from the sky. I don't know, but a lot of the evidence really does point to Iran as being behind it. And obviously, you know, we stepped up security, we brought in what a thousand more soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, you know, really to step up force protections, uh, security, surveillance, intelligence gathering, that type of, those type of operations. Um, as part of it, they were operating drones, and one of the drones was shot down over the Straits of Hormuz uh, in international water, over international waters in international airspace, prompting a reaction from the president. Now, initially, the Pentagon came to him with a plan that was going to take out uh, radar bat sites, missile batteries, things like this, you know, to re- to weaken and to retaliate against the Iranians. Well, Donald Trump, uh, as is his prerogative, uh, approximately thirty minutes beforehand, you know, when they before it was supposed to. St- to start the the generals from the Pentagon bring him the finalized plans and Donald Trump as as he said on told Chuck Todd on Meet the Press well I want to know what will be the human toll 
do you have that readily available? They didn't, so they had to go back and re- you know have them come up with an approximate number of Iranian people who would perish in all of this. And a few minutes later, they come back and they give tell uh, President Trump uh, about 150 people is uh, is a, what we're expecting to be a loss of life on the Iranian side. And Donald Trump, who, to his credit, for his entire public life, has been anti-war, anti-interventionist. And he decided, in align with his views, that 150 Iranians was not equal to the cost of one unmanned drone. And everyone in the media is losing their mind. Uh, you, and it's, it's on all sides. It's not just, oh, the left wanted him to be a warmonger, now they can call him a coward. Erin uh, Burnett on CNN, she was pretty pretty blatant about it. Um, you know, calling the question of timelines, like, well, he says 30 minutes, and then he then he's told, told Chuck Todd that, you know, or the initial press release was that he was 10 minutes at, ten minutes out from, you know, dropping bombs. Well, fact of the matter is there is a lot of information that is going off of conjecture. Maybe they were 10 minutes out from actually launching operations. We really don't know. Uh, there are reports that we had planes in the air. Maybe we had planes who were 10 minutes out from that point of no return. I don't know. But, you know, for the president to say, hey, we're doing this, and then check his swing because he didn't like the idea of, you know, this many people dying over one drone. That's his prerogative as commander-in-chief. I am a combat veteran. I have been sent on behalf of the American people to go and mete out violence on the enemies of the United States. And I can see where Donald Trump is coming from. You know, if it was a Benghazi-like attack on an American consulate or an any kind of American, uh, you know, whether it's a CIA base, whether it's, you know, State Department, where we have, you know, persons on the ground who are killed or injured going in and striking hard at the people who attacked us. That makes sense. Over a drone, not so much. Granted, I do believe that there has to be some sort of punishment for Iran over downing our drone. But for the Aaron Burnett's, the John Ziegler's, and all the others in the media who are, they're, they're, they really don't know what they want to do because 
They either want Donald Trump to be this horrible warmonger who they're just looking for any reason to dog him because, oh my goodness, the president who wanted to get us out of Afghanistan, the president who wants to get us out of Iraq, the president who wants to get us out of Syria, is now starting a war with Iran. So he cannot win on that side if he goes after if he goes after Iran. But at the same time, because he showed restraint, oh my gosh, he he's he's indecisive. He he doesn't know what he wants to do. Oh, he he's a coward. He's yellow. He does he doesn't want he doesn't want to have to, you know, you know, spill blood on you know to retaliate against our enemies. It's a lose lose situation for Donald Trump for this situation, and it I feel horrible for him. Because how is he supposed to run, you know, run our military? How is he supposed to direct our troops when if he goes with option A, he's wrong, or if he goes with option B, he's still wrong? I am at a complete and total loss. This is the, you know, what is the right thing to do in this situation? Like I said before, Iran does need to have some sort of punishment for downing our aircraft, one of our military aircraft, over international waters in international airspace. But at the same time, do we want to get ourselves drug into another quagmire where you know, we'll have to, uh, where we'll end up being stuck and Iran is not Iraq. It is not Afghanistan. It is not Syria. It has a very skilled, advanced military. They have a very horrible uh, ally against us in Russia. So not only would would we be taking on the Persian army... We would also be taking on, you know, taking on the big bear of the former Soviet Union. And, you know, I don't think there's anything that Putin would love more than to be able to take us on, even if it was using Iran as a proxy for it. They would supply all of the weapons, they would supply all of the. You know, all the technical support, all the money. And then on top of it, you also have to look at uh, who's going to be uh, all the uh, terrorist cells that are sponsored by Iran. You know, the you know, you're going to have ISIS-like cells all over the world. Not just in theater. Not just in the Middle East, where we're already operating. They're also going to be in places like Europe, the United States, South America. And they're going, uh, you're going to have Asian countries, uh, the Philippines, Indonesia, places, um, places where they have a, a significant presence of radicalized Muslims. So again, it's one of those 
is one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't situations where Donald Trump cannot win. And it's horrible. But, you know, I trust that he's going to make the right decision. I trust that his generals are going to help him to make the right decision. But as with everything, we're going to have to see how it plays out. And I hope and I pray that, you know, we do not have to go to war. I've been there. I've seen what it does to people. I know what it's done to me. So, the, the old saying, prepare for war, but pray for peace. And going into Supreme Court news, uh, there's been a couple, a few rulings over the last week that's come out. Uh, two of the bigger ones, uh, one having to do with uh, memorials in the shape of crosses. Uh, this is going looking at, you know, so you try to find the name of the, the, the Bladensburg Cross. Um, that is in Bladensburg, Maryland, and that is a, a hundred-year-old uh, cross-shaped statue. It's a memorial to the men of Bladensburg, Maryland, who fought in World War I and never came home. Uh, the cross was originally built on private property, and it was maintained by the local American Legion. Fast forward a number of years, and you get to the point where it has been, that piece of land has been annexed by the government, and now it's on public property and is maintained by maintained by the state. Well, this got the uh, crazy people at American Humanists, and I'm guessing one, maybe two members of the community who don't like it, and want it torn down because, well, this is an obvious violation of church and state. And basically, the it, it came down to a seven-two split uh, with uh, Elena Kagan and Stephen Breyer joining the conservatives in the majority, and the holdouts being uh, Justice Sotomayor and uh, Justice Ginsburg. And, you know, while it wasn't a straight-up affirmation that, yes, there can be a religious uh, uh, you know, something religious on state property maintained by the state, it at least protected this hundred hundred year old memorial. As reading in Fox News, uh, the court noted that while the cross has its roots in Christianity, it currently appears context that 
it currently appears in context that are indisputably secular, such as trademarks for Blue Cross Blue Shield, the Bayer Group, and certain products from Johnson & Johnson. The court also made a distinction that between keeping established monuments with religious symbols, like the Peace Cross, and erecting new ones, stating, quote, familiarity itself can become a reason for preservation, and the passage of time gives rise to the strong presumption of constitutionality, end quote. Oh, pardon me, I have got allergies, something fierce. Uh, even the AH the AHA recognized that the cross memorials may be permissible in some cases like certain World War I Latin crosses in Arlington National Cemetery. While claiming those crosses are different because they are in a cemetery and are more associated with individual soldiers. You know, what's the difference between individual soldiers and a group of soldiers? It's one monument to an entire group of people. Uh, they also go, they go on to make the argument that, well, what if they put a Star of David instead of a cross to represent people who aren't Jewish? Well, you know what? The, the fact that they're recognizing everyone who died, regardless of are they an atheist, Regardless, are they Jewish? Regardless, are they Christian or Muslim or what have you? That is the important thing. And then it goes back to this was built on private land, which the government later annexed. I mean, surely they couldn't figure out a way that, you know, they could grandfather which basically is what the ruling essentially says. If it's something that was built, you know, on private land and then becomes government property, you're not going to tear it down because then if you tear it down because it is a cross, it presents, you know, a clear case that, well, you're being religiously motivated in tearing it down even if it being there is not religiously motivated at all. Then you also have to look at the fact that um, what is the intent? Uh, as the court noted, quote, there is no evidence of discriminatory intent in the selection of the design of the memorial or the decision of a Maryland commission to maintain it. The religion clauses of the Constitution aim to foster a society in which people of all beliefs can come together harmoniously and the presence of the Bladensburg cross on the land where it has stood for so many years is fully consistent with that aim. End quote. I mean, they're recognizing that no, it's not up there to discriminate people because, again, regardless of all the faiths of those being recognized, regardless of all the faiths in the community, this cross is not there in order to uh, to proselytize or to to promulgate a specific religion. It is quite clear, quite clearly a memorial. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, uh, in her dissent, claim uh, stated, "quote." 
Just as a Star of David is not suitable to honor Christians who died serving their country, so a cross is not suitable to honor those of other faiths who died defending their nation. And as he was joined, and obviously joined by uh, Justice Sotomayor, uh, finally stating, quote, the dissent claimed that by having the peace cross on a public highway, the government, quote, elevates Christianity over other faiths and religion over non-religion, end quote. But even then, there are private people who go out and they put up crosses on the public right-of-way along the highway to recognize where a state trooper was killed, where a motorist died in an accident. State DOT employees typically don't take those down because, you know, this is a highly personal thing. Yes, they mow around it. But at the same time, just because there is a cross there, does not necessarily mean that the the State Department of Transportation and mowing around that area is 100% supporting that religion. You know, they're not saying, yeah, we, yeah, we're promoting Christianity because we are not taking down these crosses that someone put here. You know, it... And, and some of the other rulings that have come out this week, let's see, you know, obviously, uh, well, they, they turned down another Supreme Court uh, appeal for another, uh, for another bakery that was, you know, being sued for discrimination for not making gay wedding cakes, which... Basically, they said, uh, before you institute uh, the fines on this bakery, go back and look at the guy from Colorado. Look what we ruled on it. Make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. You're not just going out there and going after them because whatever. Make sure that it's not a religiously motivated thing. Uh, Another ruling they made uh, was a... uh, Big ruling for property rights owners. Uh, basically, in a lot of states, if you are a property owner and you have a grievance against the state, the first thing you have to do is you know, sue the state. File a lawsuit against the state about whatever action they're taking against your property. And then, if you lose that case, you appeal to the federal courts. And this is where you start getting into uh, the, the stare decisis, which basically whatever was ruled before, that's what we're going to stand with. And it gets into the to case law and precedent without necessarily wanting to touch, uh, pardon me, 
mess start having to mess with uh, ruling with constitutionality over over precedent. But in the case of Nick versus the township of Scott, Pennsylvania, this goes back to one of uh, to big property rights thing, and it's a it's a let's say question of fourth and fifth amendments because in the state of Pennsylvania there are a lot of people who have backyard cemeteries okay you know family plots and or they're just old cemeteries from previous settlements that are on land that you now own but in this particular case uh, the the township came onto private property without warning, without uh, giving a heads up to the to the property owner, and they found the old headstones that were not properly maintained, or it, it doesn't really go into what the situation was but you know and so there were fines issued against the property owner and the property owner had no had no way to to redress the system because she appealed straight to a federal court who then rejected her appeal because, well, it hasn't been settled by the state yet. And then when you settle with the state, or then once the state has settled and said, okay, here's what your fine's going to be, then you file a lawsuit with them. And it, it's a it's a catch-22. Okay, I've been fined by the state. The state typically rules against you. So I'm going to go to the federal government who then is more than likely going to favor the state. And this has been uh, 150 years worth of precedent that has now been tipped up on its ear because in a 5-4 split, the court ruled that and the situations with where these you know backyard cemeteries are considered public land and therefore public officials can go in and investigate them at, and do inspections at any ram time is a violation of the holdings clause of the fifth amendment and so Based on that, it throws out the an earlier ruling, which said no, you have to go through this, go to the state, then the federal government, and maybe you'll get to the Supreme Court. But more than likely, you know, with under the Williamson decision in 1985, it's not going to happen. Uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote in 
you know, in his opinion, the taking quote, the takings plaintiff thus finds himself in a catch twenty two. He cannot go to federal court without going to state court first. But if he goes to state court and loses, his claim will be barred in federal court. The federal claim dies a borning, end quote. Now, yeah, and this, you know, has the, like I said, this has all of the liberal justices all upset because now uh, they're going after precedent, which I'm shocked because, you know, Justice Kavanaugh even said in his, uh, in his confirmation hearings that, you know, oh, precedent, 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 precedent. I wouldn't overturn a, you know, something that's already been decided, and now here he is. And now uh, Stephen Breyer has, and Elena Kagan have both questioned what's going to get upset next. Are they going to take an abortion hearing and, overturn Roe vs. Wade. Uh, even Elena Kagan said that this decision is not something that should have been made in the Supreme Court, but through an act of Congress. But even then, an act of Congress would would be overturning something that is not even in law. It's a principle that they use in case law to decide okay, this is the precedent set by this case, and we're going to see if we can apply it in this case. But right now, you know, okay, this precedent matches up, so we're going to make a ruling based on it, or this precedent does not line up, so we're going to just set that one to the side. I think it's great that this is a return to uh, what does the Constitution say versus, well, what did we rule in the past? Because, and this is something I said, I don't know how many times before, in private conversation. If we live by precedent, then it is still perfectly constitutional to decide we don't like that race of people over there. We're going to put them in internment camps, as as has been decided under the Korematsu decision. Black people are not really people and therefore do not have rights. Is another wonderful precedent that you know, I'm pretty sure liberals would absolutely love if we still went by you know, according to the Dred Scott decision. And and there's probably a hundred more bad decisions by the Supreme Court. Um, I, I don't remember the name of the case, but the reason why co- uh, the federal government can get involved in your business for whatever reason, if they deem they need to get into it, as a 1930s Supreme Court case in which a farmer was growing his own wheat for feeding to his cows 
and then the rest he was selling in the market. The federal government said, whoa, 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 you, you can't be growing all this extra. You have to destroy it. So I'm, I'm not selling it. It's not going out in the market. It's my personal use. And then when it went to the Supreme Court, the Supreme, the Supreme Court ruled that, well, you may have an effect on interstate markets with this extra wheat if you decide you're going to go ahead and sell it. So, yes, we're siding with the government. And that is how the Interstate Commerce Clause came to be the bane of existence of a lot of business owners. Because if they may happen to possibly, perhaps, do some sort of interstate business, now the federal government can come in and turn your business up on its ear all because you might have an effect on interstate commerce. And that's just the dumbest thing. Getting into something a little bit more light. Um, last week in an interview, Mayor Pete was asked about, you know, well, what does it mean if you're the first gay president? And he came out and basically said, well, statistically speaking, I wouldn't be the first one, but, you know, I'd be the first openly gay president. And you know, when asked about, you know, well, well, Okay, if we had some in the past, what, who, who were the gay ones? Well, you know, my gaydar is not that good, you know, in the present, much less, you know, looking back at history. And you know, that got me, got me kind of curious. So a little Google searching. And oh, one of the, uh, the most obvious ones, you know, that was to find was James Buchanan. Uh, James Buchanan, uh, he was engaged for a brief time, but his fiancée passed away before they could get married. And he later went on to room to a room with Senator Rufus King of Alabama. And their relationship was such that uh, Andrew Jackson liked to refer to them as Miss Nancy and Aunt Fancy. And then when, uh, when Senator King was given a diplomatic post overseas, uh, James Buchanan wrote that he... He attempted to woo gentlemen, but was unsuccessful. I mean, there's no writings, you know, that really confirm that James Buchanan had physical intimacy with Rufus King. 
but the uh, I mean, the evidence is there, and, and it's highly suggestive at at the very least. Um, and as I got to look into this, something that kind of really shocked me. But you know, I'm open to the realm of possibility. Was that perhaps Abraham Lincoln was gay? Um, you know, history. This is a uh, NBC News article. Uh, historians have speculated that Abraham Lincoln had an intimate relationship with lifelong friend Joshua Speed, as well as captain of his bodyguards David V. Derrickson. And these relationships, some contend, explain his tumultuous marriage to Mary Todd. Hmm. And it's funny, uh, I was going through, I've got another article on this from the New York Times. And I will give this article, it's it's from uh, December 16, 2004. So it, it's an older article. And it really goes into some detail as far as relationships with Speed and Derrickson. And it, it kind of throws out a few other names. But it does also play with the fact that, you know, some of the, you know, some of the historical facts that at that time... Living t- living quarters were quite tight, and so you would have men who would share a bed, but not in a carnal sense. And and it does offer a bit of an out, if you were, as far as uh, that that explanation of oh they shared a bed. But um, because there there's a number of uh, like it mentions that. There's one man who wrote that he shared a bed with Lincoln for four years. And uh, there's a one uh, relationship with someone named Billy Green, who with, with whom Lincoln supposedly shared a bed in New Salem. This is a reading from New York Times. Ernest said Green told him that Lincoln's thighs, quote, were as perfect as a human being could be, end quote. Uh, fellow lawyer Henry C. Whitney observed that once that Lincoln, quote, wooed me to close intimacy and familiarity, end quote. But then again, words have changed meaning and context over the years. And you can have an intimate, familiar relationship with a close friend without it ever being sexual. And you know, and there were women at the time who wrote who wrote about it. Uh, this is like there's uh, writing from Virginia Woodbury Fox uh, as the wife of Assistant Secretary to the Navy. Gustavus Fox, you know, she, you know, wrote, 
quote, there is a bucktail soldier here devoted to the president, drives with him, and when Mrs. L is not home, sleeps with him. What stuff, end quote. And, you know, to say what stuff at that point was a dismissive quote or was a dismissive saying, you know, basically calling BS on it. So, I mean, even at the time, you know, there were rumors and there were people who believed it. There were people who didn't believe it. I mean, I really don't know what to think of these uh, accusations that Lincoln may have been homosexual. I'm really not too sure. But what's funny is that there are those within the gay community, those, those who, you know, study gay history and the effect and the effects on our history that you know gay people in the past have played some of them they they play the card of well you can't apply what we think of as gay today to people of the past because you know What's considered, you know, what's gay today, as far as, you know, open lifestyle, uh, you don't have to worry about any kind of criminal prosecutions or anything like that. But back then, you know, buggery, which was, you know, the crime of having homosexual relations would get you put in jail. And so, if you were homosexual in the 1800s or earlier, you had to be really, really careful about whom you had your relations with because, you know, if you were married to a woman and got caught doing that, it probably would not turn out too well for you in the long run, especially if you're a prominent attorney or a congressman or a president. But then again, you go back in time even further, uh, the one of the greatest uh, ass- builders of the American military uh, Baron von Steuben from Prussia, he was run out of the Prussian army because, as as a as an officer, he he had stewards, typically younger men, with whom he would have relations with. It, that's something that I've learned the last few years. And it's like, you know, when, so when he shows up to the United States and he's, you know, seeks out George Washington here, here he comes all flamboyant. And, and that's something that was written about, about him is that he was a very flamboyant individual. You know, he would have, you know, he'd have his, have his pages and, all around him at all times and you know 
sleeping in his tent with them, whereas, you know, American generals, if they had pages, they slept in separate quarters. So, I mean, I just think it's so interesting, you know, the possibility that, yeah, well, maybe. And and not, not that there's anything wrong with that. It, if it's an actual part of our history, I think it should be, you know, accepted. If it, but if it's, you know, rumors being spread to, uh, you know, especially in the case of Lincoln, to to malign his character and, you know, get, you know, conservatives to think a lot less of him than we, than what we do. And I, obviously that's not the, something that should be going on. That's just, that's just as bad as slandering and libeling people today, except, you know, with, Someone who's been dead since 1865, they really can't defend themselves. And so, you know, we're left looking at the historical record. Writings of Lincoln, writings of Mary Todd, writings of his contemporaries, and going, okay, was he or wasn't he? But in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. But I just think, you know, it would be... That's something kind of interesting to learn, dive into. And finally, uh, closing out the podcast, uh, one last segment here. This is an interesting segment. It's uh, articles from the Daily Callers from uh, a couple days ago. Republican Oregon state senators flee the state to avoid vote. The governor sends state police to find them. So, right now in Oregon, there's a huge debate on cap and trade. Uh, It's something that the Democrats have said, oh, we'll table that for now. You know, we're not going to worry about it, you know. To the next session, and then all of a sudden, yeah, we're going to do cap and trade. But the uh, the Republicans really not too fond of this idea. So, in to prevent a vote, all the all the Senate Republicans from the state of Oregon have absconded. Yes, that's right. They. Hit the road. They're on the lamb. Reading from Daily Caller here. Quote, Oregon's Democrat governor sent state police to round up Republican state legislators on Thursday as they tried to avoid a quorum for a vote on wide-ranging climate bill. But some had already fled the state. Quote, I think Senate Republicans all left if they're not already on their way out, end quote. Jonathan Lockwood, spokesman for the Oregon Oregon Republicans, told the Daily Caller News Foundation in a phone interview. Quote, the reason they've left the state is because it's obviously harder for state police to drag them back to the Capitol, end quote. You know, I just think it's hilarious. Um, 
because this isn't the first time a state a state has had part of its uh, legislative body disappear on it. Uh, happened in Texas a number of years ago. I I don't remember what what it was that they were protesting a vote on, but they all packed up and went to the casinos across the state line in Oklahoma. Oklahoma should be so proud they can get Texas to run away from uh, having a vote. Uh, in the article, it quotes uh, Brian Boquist, one of these state senators, who reportedly fled to Iowa. He said, quote, This is what I told the Oregon State Police Superintendent. Send bachelors and come heavily armed. I'm not going to be a political prisoner in the state of Oregon. It's just that simple. End quote. Um, yeah, the Republicans who are in the minority in the state Senate walked out on a school funding tax package in May and came back after reaching a deal with Democratic Oregon Governor Kate Brown. Uh, basically, they were trying to tie in vaccinations and gun control into this bill, and they said, mm, nope, nope, we're not having any part of it. But uh, the governor went on to on to say about this particular situation, quote, the Senate Republicans have decided to abandon their duty to serve their constituents and walk out, she said in a statement. The Senate Democrats have requested the assistance of Oregon State Police to bring back their colleagues to finish the work they committed to push forward for Oregonians. I don't know I think it sounds like they are doing the work of their constituents. They were voted into office by like-minded people who probably don't want to have cap-and-trade affecting their daily lives. And so by making it to where they can't vote because they don't have enough people for a quorum, it stops the bill dead in its tracks. Alright, the article goes on. Republicans want the issue to go to vote. Ah, that's what they're want they're saying that if it's going to be a big cap and trade, it's going to affect the Oregon economy. Let the voters decide. I'm assuming there's a lot of tax revenue to be made off this cap and trade thing, so instead of so why not have the citizens of Oregon be the ones to decide. Do we want to pay more taxes? Do we want to be more limited in X, Y, and Z? Yes, I don't really don't think uh, that's that big of an issue. Uh, they negotiated with Democrats for eight hours before walking out late Wednesday night. Uh Going back to Lockwood, uh, the spokesman for the Republican part for Republicans said, quote, one of the worst things about the proposal is it would allow the governor to put our state into binding contracts with other states and even foreign governments. I'll stop right there because um, I'm pretty sure that under the United States Constitution, states aren't allowed to 
make binding international agreements with foreign governments. That is what the federal government does. Now, I could be wrong. Perhaps in the Tenth Amendment, they have the latitude to do such things. But, you know, if, you know, China tells Oregon, hey, you're going to do this and we're going to do that, and Oregon agrees to it, and then China doesn't hold up their end of the deal, you know, then Oregon is obligated to hold up a losing deal. As it goes on, Lockwood goes on, quote, Senate Republicans have every right to deny a quorum because Democrats broke their pledge on resetting cap-and-trade talks. Again, as I said earlier. Now, the cap-and-trade proposal has generated fear among many business owners and would be the second of its kind in addition to California's, reported the AP Oregon. Reported the AP. Oregon State Senators have little more than a week left in legislative session and need to vote on the state budget. Legislative body needs 20 senators for a quorum. Now, Brown has served as governor of Oregon since 2015 after defeating Republican Newt Bueller. 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 Anyone? Bueller. Oh, don't look at me like that. You would have made the same damn joke. Uh, she announced in October that she would sign an executive order banning offshore drilling interstate as a rebuke to the Trump administration's energy agenda. I mean, that's that's just a, I don't know, a fun article to end end the podcast on with a runaway Senate. I mean, hopefully for the people of Oregon, they can get it worked out because with the obviously with the end of their legislative session coming up and they still need to pass a budget. Hopefully for that state, they can figure that one out. Oh, but yeah, it's just, like I said, something fun. But again, this has been, you know, the second time trying pulling as close to an hour as I can get. My brain is having a hard time. <laughs> but um, and also in the middle of it, I did have a slight power outage. Fortunately, I was recording on laptop, not desktop. So <laughs> I would have probably blown my brains out if I had to go back and do 45 minutes of podcast over again. Whew. But no, um, yeah, this has been... I'm telling you, this has been uh, fun. I had I have a number of listeners uh, on Twitter who told me I need to reach out to Mojo Five O, which I reached out to Ron over there, and he gave me some pointers, which I'm trying to get put into place uh, as far as like normalizing my audio between what I'm recording with the microphone, the music on the po- on the podcast. Trying to get trying to get it, you know, at a more even tone. It's kind of hard when, as opposed to a lot of people who have the resources to be able to, you know, rent a podcast studio or to convert a room in their home into a podcast studio. 
to be able to do that so you don't have to be right up on top of a microphone. That way you're getting the clearest audio that you can. But again, I, uh, those of you who are, who've been listening to me, you know, from the very first episode, you have heard, you know, the change from going from a digital microphone. Now I have an analog setup, and I'm just slowly building. I'm building my craft. Um, you know, maybe one day this show will be will get me to where I'm, you know. I have a show on Mojo or, you know, somewhere else picks me up and offers me, you know, decent money for a regular gig. I don't know. I said, I, this, this is a slow moving train wreck and y'all are along for the carnage. Again, thank you all for listening. It means so much to me. Saves 84 up in South Dakota, Libertarian Ninja up in Omaha. Shelly, wherever you're at, thank you all so much. Y'all have, y'all bust my balls and, you know, pick on me and you make me laugh. And I'm glad to play along with y'all. It's great. I enjoy the feedback. Uh, If you're new to the podcast, follow, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at, at Daring Podcast. Follow me. Follow my personal Twitter account at Real Tyler Morgan. Uh, the podcast is available iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. My gracious host over at Podbean.com. Uh, it's also available on iHeartRadio and on YouTube. If you go to YouTube, search Relentless Daring. You can get the last few episodes. Still trying to figure out how to get the first few episodes on to YouTube. It's kind of annoying. But uh, on on iTunes, smash the subscribe button, rate it five stars, review it, and most importantly, share it with your friends. If you have if you have friends who are and family members who think like you, or even if they don't think like you, they're more liberal, but they're open minded, share it with them. I'm I'm more than happy to reach out across the aisle, you know, for you know, to actually have a conversation, share ideas, because truly that's the only way we get rid of bad ideas is to just put everything into the marketplace, into the idea marketplace. The best ones are going to rise to the surface. The worst ones are going to sink to the bottom and we get rid of them. And the only way we can do that is through rational conversation. Again, thank you for listening to the Relentless Daring Podcast. I am your host, Tyler Morgan. And as always, Stay relentless.